Hello, welcome back to Contra. With me today is Associate Dean of Van Andel Graduate School of Government at Hillsdale College in DC and an Assistant Professor of Government there, Mr. Meehan. How are you today, sir? I'm doing very well. Mr. Uh, I, I'm, so, I'm so used to actually, I was looking directly at the title of one of the books that we're going to discuss and I forgot to tell you his first name. It's uh, Dr. Matthew Meehan. Um, <laughs> Good man. I, I met him for the first time actually at a, uh, I think it was a Christmas party, right? In DC. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And uh, we hit it off because we both agreed that Socrates probably deserved to die. And, uh, or that at least there's a, there's a compelling argument for, for how him being uh, actually unironically a, a corrupter of the youth or something, something along those lines. I don't remember. It was uh, when there was drinks involved, but um and and also you said that that there was a, a crime has been committed against Cicero, uh, in his book on duties, which was until very recently one of the most widely read books for uh, in in the academy, uh, and it was kind of like a, a touchstone of of basically you need to read this to learn how to, how to be a virtuous and good citizen of Rome, and yep. and now no one reads on duties by Cicero, uh, and in fact. There's a, to some degree, it makes sense that, that people are kind of like anti-Cicero today because it's interesting how our politics reads back into history because, you know, it's like Cicero, a defender of, uh, of basically traditional order. Well, what happens when that traditional order or our perceptions of it change, right? And it's like, so now on the internet, Cicero is the defender of the deep state who had it coming or something like that. It's kind of interesting how our perspectives change the way that we look at, at history. But anyways, I totally agree with you. I think, I think we threw the baby out with the bathwater. I think people should read um, more Cicero and, and you're totally right. You, and you opened my eyes to that, but yeah, I think, I think you can safely say that the deep state is probably the most egregious violation of Ciceronian Republican teachings that you yeah. can find. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's. I think some some of the uh, some of these debates are a little bit too online, but they're they're interesting nevertheless because they kind of reflect our, our own attitudes towards our own our own government and how that influences everything that we see. But we're not going to talk about. Well, we are going to talk about the political, but um, the the main thing that I wanted to get into you with is the, the two children's books that you've read, written. And like I mentioned in the beginning, one is uh, Mr. Meehan's mildly amusing mythical mammals. And the other one, which uh, I, I, ha I have, is The Handsome Little Signet, which is a very nice book. Uh, it's beautifully illustrated. I'm going to put links and, and pictures in the post so people can see it. But it's a, it's a very uh, beautifully illustrated children's book about um, a baby swan, which is what a signet is. I didn't know that until, yes, it's very, very beautiful. Um, I can't recommend it enough. Not not only because it's it's very well written uh, and very I think easy for kind of kids to to enjoy uh, because it's well written, but also it's just um, the illustrations are gorgeous. But it's also I think um, what impresses me about the book is that it does something that I think a lot of conservative or conservative leaning literature doesn't do, which is that it, it communicates values and morals in a way that's kind of, uh, I guess, it's subtle. Um, I won't name names, but there are a lot of like conservative children's book 
books out there where it's like it's not subtle they're kind of hitting you over the head with like a john mccain war 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 kind of propaganda thing you know it's like this is why we have to grow up and go to war and things like that it just and it doesn't it, i think that when the message is so overtly political it backfires and I, it, what your book does is it, it kind of it has a political teaching and a moral teaching but it's it's framed as um as a, as as a story about the relationship between a, ch a wayward child and their parents who are always going to be there to take them back into their arms. So I'll let you take it from here. If it, you can you can pick up on anything I said. No, I look, I think there's a place for straightforward, uh, more didactic lesson literature uh, as, as a kind of quick and dirty, but that's usually only successful when accompanied by sort of the deeper work of, of myth-making, storytelling, and kind of world-building. Um, so I don't, I think that's a fine thing, but but I'm not, that's not what I do at all. I think the deeper poetry, uh, the deeper magic, as C.S. Lewis called it, uh, uh, is is this kind of, uh, this kind of imagery that follows what um, uh, Lear's Fool in Shakespeare's King Lear said, uh, have more than thou showest, speak less than thou knowest, right? Sort of People can feel and be moved deeply by images that are full of symbolic resonance and full of implication. And you don't have to spell it out because it turns out human beings are actually quite intelligent uh, and know how to look at something and see a lot of what's not visibly represented, right? You can sort of look at someone and go like, oh, that person's clearly a drug addict. They didn't tell you they were a drug addict. They're not shooting up with a needle. You can't even see the track lines in their arm. They're wearing long sleeves. But just something about their basic carriage and the, the sallow tone of their face, like, yeah, druggy, got it, right? Like, that's actually how we learn a lot of things, and it's actually how we learn most deeply. So, uh, you know, the other person I always go to as a touchstone is Emily Dickinson, uh, the great American poetess. She said, uh, um, her famous poem, tell all the truth, but tell it slant success in circuit lies, right? That yeah. if you just flash people with the truth in a sort of bombshell, oftentimes they're startled, bewildered, angered, frightened, and it becomes unintelligible and they just, it doesn't take, it's like water over a rock. Yeah. So, uh, that's yeah. why I like to write the way I do. And I think it's the way a lot of the great writers have always written. Yeah. What, what I mean, what brought you to this point where you want to write children's books? Because you're you're um, you're a professor of government at Hillsdale. Um, you're a busy guy, and you're writing children's books. Why? Well, I, I, so, I I am a professor at Hillsdale, but this is my second profession. Uh, my first profession, although I it's one long sort of teaching profession. My first profession was actually at a boys' prep school. Hmm for 20 years, um, building curricula for schools around the country, but also especially for this really wonderful prep school here in DC, I think it's one of the best in the country. Um, all boys, all male faculty. Um, and uh, the other major factor in why I turned to children's books, I have eight children. Uh, and the more I would eight read- Eight children. Eight children, yes. Incredible. The world must be peopled as Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, the, uh, and my wife is a good Roman wife. Speaking of Cicero, his <laughs> <laughs> nails. But um, the uh, um, but reading children's books to them, and you know, encountering students with strange opinions, 
And you hear this, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but people will say bewilderedly, right? Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's in the water, like whatever it is. Yeah. Hypersensitive narcissism. It's in the water or the, the relativism. It's in the water or the sort of hatred of tradition and authority. It's just in the water. It's like, it's not. Fluoride's in the water. Chlorine's in the water. Maybe it's a few hormones that mess with the frogs, right? But that's, that's, that's actually not what's, what's doing it. It's in the kid lit. It's in the art. Yeah. yeah. That's actually where those small particulates are getting in through these subtle images which, by the way, Team Bad Guy knows how to do infinitely better than us. They left us philosophy and law, and they said, thank you very much. We'll take all of the storytelling and image making. And there really are only a few handful of programs in the world that still survive that are not utterly captured in those departments. Whereas economics, philosophy, law, politics, there's a lot of survivor departments. I think there's only one or two in the world that still survive. I happen to have gone to one of them, and I think it's excellent. And I'm thankful I did. So I learned these arts from not a depraved perspective of radicality and revolution, but yeah. from tradition and nature. But uh, so reading children's books to my own children uh, and seeing all kinds of very subtle, very perverse things unfolding in very popular, like everyone thinks is just like, that's a kid's classic. That's wonderful. And I'm like... You know, like, unless you have a lot of countervailing advice, this thing's going to mess with that kid and turn them to the bad. Uh, right. so, you know, and I think a number of families uh, started realizing this. And so what they would do is they would, you know, not necessarily have 100% shot selection, but they'd be wary of like Heather has two mommies kind of like obviously transformative social mores type revolutionary things. Um or, you know, how to be a child activist, like that kind of no brainer. Uh, but, but, but they didn't know, uh, they didn't know where to turn in terms of popular fiction. Uh, and sometimes they would, they would mess it up. But what they wound up doing is reverting to, I only go to used bookstores and buy sepia toned faded old books from yesteryear. So there's like a black market amongst parents trying to find old, non-ideologically, you know, strained or perverted children's books from 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago, you know, uh, sort of this black market of old used children's books. So I said, that's depressing. That's despair worthy. Uh, and that's a dying culture. So my dear friend and I, John Folly, who's my illustrator mm. for both of the books, we decided, well, doggone it. We know we have the arts. He's got the visual arts. He's very traditional, trained through Ecole de Arts and uh, the, the Boston School. All the way back, he can trace his master apprenticeship back to Raphael's workshop um, in Florence. No kidding. Um, master apprentice, clean wow. line. Um, you know, and I got my own chops, which I'll let him brag about me one day if he ever gets around to it. But um, the, the, the we're like, okay, let's, let's make new things for a new generation. Like let's like the vitality and, and joy uh, and life givingness of every generation. We should make our own good, beautiful things. So as a kind of almost like a symbol of hope, but also as a, a corrective. So I even wrote the handsome little signet uh, as a kind of correction of a number of books um, and a nod to one of the ones I think is lovely and famous, which is Make Way for Ducklings and The Ugly Duckling, Hans Christian Andersen. So yeah. it some good, but also correct some bad. Yeah, I like that. Um, I don't know why, but I like that it takes place in the middle of a city. Something that I think maybe because this, um, 
you've kind of thrown a family into the thick of it. And I mean, that's, that's typically where, you know, the worst kinds of things and influences exist is in a big city like New York and <clears throat> the family of swans in this book are, are there. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't take very much for the, uh, for the signet to find themselves uh, in your book, literally tainted by all of these influences. Um, no, I, I agree. I think back to a dialogue. It's funny. I've recently started to pick back up all of these old, uh, like I, I used to, I, before I dropped out of, um, of, of university at Hills, uh, not Hillsdale, Ashland, which is like the, uh, the other Hillsdale. Um, yeah. Uh, before I dropped out there, uh, I, I was a, uh, a history and philosophy major and I really, enjoy, I fondly think about just basically reading uh, philosophy and, and, and just discussing it. And one of the, the texts that I always come back to uh, was Plato's uh, Gorgias. Um, is, that, is it Gorgias or Gorgias? I've heard it pronounced differently. Uh, you know, like, I don't know what it is technically, but I always say Gorgias is what I've heard. Gorgias, yeah. Okay. Gorgias, but I'm not sure. Okay, I'll add that one to my list. Um, well, in that dialogue... Uh, there's this whole debate over, um, I'm basically over, over rhetoric and the, the dialogue concludes with this myth, the myth of the afterlife. And it's a, kind of a paradox because, you know, Socrates concludes not with a kind of a rational argument, but with basic, basically an appeal to myth to, to communicate some kind of moral lesson. And I think about that a lot. And if I'm if I'm not butchering uh, the, the the dialogue, because it's been a while since I've read it, but I think about that because it's kind of an admission that humans learn better uh, and can be taught better through myths and stories instead of just bludgeoning people with facts and logic, which seems to be repellent to to the to the to the human mind, or at least it it doesn't really permeate the membrane as effectively as, as a kind of uh, as, as, a, as a teaching that is communicating something that's true, but transmitting it by appealing to myth and imagery. Um, and I, I realize that now as I get older, I think back to all of like the books and movies that, you know, I read as a kid, or I, I go back and I look at them and I realize like, oh, wow, this is terrible. You know, go back and like watch Lethal Weapon and you'll see tons of like little pieces of bizarre propaganda, like, uh, I think there's like some like anti Rhodesia stuff in Lethal Weapon, you know, just like random stickers and like images of things that are just kind of putting things in your head. And and I've wondered like, did any of that affect my political views when I was kind of like a generic liberal and, and growing up in California? Probably. And the thing is, is, I had no idea because you're right. You you just kind of absorb these things osmotically uh, without thinking about them. And and to your point about like basically as now that I'm an adult, I think about this stuff all the time. Um, I, I actually was at the, I, we go to the bookstore once a week with our kids and I picked up a, uh, it was like a, it was a reprint of the first edition of Winnie the Pooh and I, I picked it up and I realized, uh, how great I, I didn't realize that Winnie the Pooh was actually so great or as, uh, as they say, based, uh, you know, they always, they've always got a court gun and Winnie the Pooh has a shotgun and stuff and pretty great but um but yeah i mean there's a real lack and, and like in the kids section at barnes and noble you know you've got like you literally have like michelle obama like a a, a a book either written by her or her like autobiography next to like you know winnie the pooh and stuff so it's 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 a minefield out there 
So what you're doing is definitely commendable. And I think there's a market for it. So, and you're working on another one. Uh, yeah, I'm working on a number of them. Uh, kind of, you know, you kind of, there's different stiff parts or sort of phases of writing, stages of writing. And so I'm kind of uh, developing uh, three of them at the moment. We'll see which one pops first, but um, uh, I, yeah, I I definitely ag agree with that. I mean, in fact, I think Socrates ends so many of his uh, dialogues with myths, sometimes two myths. My favorite, the Phaedo, he tells one and then he goes, well, it might be something like this instead. And he tells a second one uh, and sort of doubles yeah. up. We need to like, you know, let's, let's hit it again. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a reason for that. One is, uh, and I think the fact that you see it, that observation as a corrective to our own time reveals something about the hatred of the body. Um, ironically, this sort of strange, we don't like the fact that we're sensible creatures with a body that use images and hmm. our five senses. We actually rebel against that and we like theory and ideas and science and philosophy um, but we actually um, have a certain kind of hatred of image uh, and the sort of common sensibleness of things. Uh, and you can trace that back to all kinds of different factors, um, some of which are overstated, like the sort of Occam-Descartes critique, but that that's overdone. Uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, I, I, think, um, uh, I think there is this sort of recognition. I mean, I think back to Aristotle, so you can't actually think without images. Like it's impossible. Like the only way to think about things that are not images is to think of an image and then say, well, it's better than that. Or I deny it. It's not that, but it's like that. So yeah. even when you're trying to get past images, you only have images to work with. So yeah. we're very much because we're a body soul composite. We're not just a brain. We're not a mind. That's what we use. So, uh, you know, and I, part of this is why, why Mr. Meehan's mildly amusing mythical mammals, why I chose sort of myth. And I do, if, you know, if you get around to it, I recommend that one. It's definitely more of a big kid book. Um, uh, but, but it is, they're mythical because by the time you're done with that alphabet, all of those little beasties that I re write about and all the artwork has tried incompletely as any attempt would has tried to give a kind of, uh, image of the whole a well-ordered a beautifully well-ordered whole of the world hmm. the cosmos it's literally where we get the word cosmetic right a cosmos it's very hard for someone to judge anything rightly as a matter of practical wisdom unless they know where they and their particular moment and the particular circumstances fit in a much larger temporal spatial political, social, anthropological, and even theological whole, right? To know, am I being too firm? Am I being too soft? Is this just the right amount of X, right? Is this the right moment for Y? How does this relate to? So I actually think that the work of the poet is one of the most overlooked uh, aspects of shaping common sense and practical judgment for self-government in, 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 in the tradition. And no one even sees it now as a fundamental role, right? Uh, except the bad guys who are trying to totally terraform our way of thinking about these things. So, yeah. you know, that's, 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 I think, very rightly observed in Plato and Socrates that actually 
It's one thing to make a series of arguments, but no one ever fell in love with an argument. Yeah. They fell in love with an argument that they realized is a beautiful argument because it's part of the whole of the rightness of being. Like, yes, this fits into something else. So if yeah. you don't have a mythos, a, a, a wider view of the world, you're never going to accept an argument. It just it has to be plugged in that way. And that's part of the art of rhetoric, but it's also, I think, sort of even more articulated and deeper in the art of poetry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, back to the, the you know, what are the other things I'm working on? Um, different. One of them is a, a, it's a character I don't want to necessarily reveal yet, but the character actually struggles with wrath. Hmm. Uh, he's is a very funny uh, little sort of uh, creature of the of the woods, um, unexpected. Not you know your average. It's not not, not what you'd think. But uh, uh, but he basically has to learn to direct his anger uh, and channel it with meekness. A lot of people think meekness is weakness or like this overprudence, but meekness is actually like can you hold the fire of anger in your hands? let your hands sort of burn and then direct powerfully when needed. Right. The, 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 like this, the, the, the kettle is always ready to steam, but always in the right direction for the right cup of tea. Right. For the right yeah. power. Uh, and uh, I think that's really a good analogy. Yeah. I think that's important for, uh, for a lot of us right now, because this is a time of great injustice. So I think young people are going to have to learn to channel their anger productively. Um, so that's one of the books I'm working on. Uh, um, that's sort of a, um, a, a, a larger storybook. Um, and then, I've, I've, you know, we can talk about the others if you want. But um, uh, but that's, you know, those are the kinds of things I'm, I'm thinking about. With, with, uh, with the handsome little signet, the last part of your, your, your riff you started on was why I put it in, in New York City in the middle of a city. I get asked on the book tour, I got asked, Sort of, why did you put it in New York City? Why didn't you put it in like a a happy town in a red state or something? Or, you know, like which is you know like a legit question. But, but yeah. at the same time, uh, you're kind of like, well, because one, I'm an American and New York is a city in my country, so I'm taking it back, right? Just because yeah. the weirdos want to hold those citadels, like, right? Yeah. How do you how do you actually have cultural victory? You walk into their right. citadel and sit on their throne. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sit right in the middle of Central Park with my children's book, whatever. I'm an American. I love New York. It, it can be great again, you know, uh, two, that is a birthplace of a lot of the types of bad ideological and social movements that have now taken over children's literature and, and, and seek to pervert young people with all kinds of weird, woke trans you know like yeah lgbtq crazy like lots of nutty stuff came right out of that place so i wanted a, a family with a strong father and a thoughtful and caring mother right to basically have to navigate engage and overcome that kind of thing which is basically what we're all facing right now yeah no it's really good i think i think that's right i think uh the idea that basically uh, of just retreating from all the places where you know the left has won it's not really an option it, it, this and this I mean this ties into my opposition to the to the idea of like national divorce not just because i think it's on the one hand not going to happen on the other hand 
they'll never leave you alone. The idea that if we just, you know, break the country in half or something, the fighting will stop. It's just, it's just, no, that's not going to happen. I think the, 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 the enemy, whatever you want to call it, the left, whatever the libs, I think they're imperialistic by nature. And so they'll, they'll never stop. You know, the fact that there's a border separating red America and blue America and them knowing that there are people who exist in red America that don't share their values. I mean, it just, I think it just infuriates them. So I, I, the, I, the whole idea of just kind of giving up, uh, it, it's never really appealed to me. Uh, I, on the other hand, I don't think that there's, you know, I'm not one of these people who's telling others that uh, that California was going to turn red in 2020 or something like this ridiculous, right? No. But at the same time, I, I do think that, you know, change is possible and that a reaction is at some point, I would like to hope, inevitable. Um, but it requires work, the kind of work that you're doing, um, kind of setting the stage. And what better way to do that than by raising the next generation or, or, or what you're doing and culcating certain uh, teachings and morals and, and views in them uh, in this way. It's funny that we, you, you talk about um, basically delivering the truth in a way that's not so direct. I, I recently started to kind of pick back up Hemingway. Um, and this comes off of me uh, saying that I, I think Hemingway is a little bit overrated. I prefer, you know, like it, Faulkner. I, I, I'm, I'm very partial to like Cormac McCarthy and these kind of long neo-biblical, beautifully descriptive, often haunting lines. Hemingway is not that. He's, he's much more economic. But I think there is something actually very powerful in the way he writes in the sense that he kind of, uh, the, the 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 feeling the images are kind of buried in between the lines, and and you it, it kind of charges his words with electricity because he doesn't spell it out for you. He kind of makes you feel it, and in some ways that's a really I don't want to say uh, it, I prefer it to like McCarthy, but I've I've, I've realized or I've I've come to appreciate that it's actually a really powerful way of storytelling because it's like Hemingway draws you in by making you have to feel what he's writing instead of him spelling it out for you. Um, you know, I, uh, um, I challenge anyone to read uh, Hills Like White Elephants, the short story from Hemingway. I've never read it. Uh, and, and, not, and not agree that it is probably the greatest piece of fictive or poetic argument against abortion that exists. What is it called? I'm going to read it after this recording. Hills Like White Elephants. Hills like white elephant okay. it's a short story it's oh i don't know 15 pages or less okay. i can't recall but it's it's just the most and, and it's all subtext but it is it's just it blows you away with the power of the isolating divisive careless horror that is abortion it's it's just amazing hmm. so i think I'm also, I think muscular prose, as it's called Hemingway's muscular prose is overrated. Uh, but you know, the Nick Adams stories when he's fishing and he's, you know, looking at a little, uh, you know, trout holding in the current and that's where Nick is, you know, in his life, trying to like, kind of like try to keep this equipoise. It's like, like, bravo. Yeah, yeah that's bravo. right. That's yeah. gorgeous. Um, uh, so I have a, I have a place in my heart as a Michigander, uh, I once uh, read the Nick Adams stories on the big two-hearted river canoeing once. So 
Uh, I'm a sucker for Hemingway, but I think he's, I agree, he's overrated. Um, and I think Hemingway is wildly underrated and still very relevant, and maybe even more relevant today than ever, because he was dealing with the superstructure of Puritanism and how that had to give way to something more humane. Uh, and we're dealing with the superstructure of the current regime. And uh, I think Hawthorne's a really good person to go back to. Hmm. Uh, think those things through again um it's funny that you say hawthorne nathaniel hawthorne yeah mm -hmm. um the birthmark um, yes. i'm going to be actually writing about uh, at some point uh chronicles um where i'm the politics editor uh at some point we are going to probably do like an issue on on uh on futurism um I have no idea when, but it's just something that at some point I think is probably going to happen because it, it's just a topic that is just trending right now. This this idea that we can transcend what it means to be human. So <clears throat> I'm sure at some point we're going to do a kind of a an issue about that. And when we do, I've got it in my back pocket that I want to comment. On, I wanted to use the birthmark um, because again, it was it, it, it's a perfect example of what we're discussing. Um, it's it's this this poem about a, a kind of a mad scientist type of figure um who tries to remove a birthmark from his beloved and and, and beautiful and beautiful wife yes, beautiful wife completely beautiful in every way perfect but she has a birthmark and uh, uh, this is going to be a plot spoiler so you can hit the mute button right now but she dies in, in his attempt to remove the birthmark and it, it's this story obviously about the folly of of the idea that humans can sort of master everything with the proper application of science and technique. And there, there's, it's just a, it's really just a gold mine for, for, for you to, to dig out of. But more importantly, it, it stayed with me because the imagery was so beautiful. Like the way he describes the woman, she's just this impossibly beautiful, impeccably beautiful woman. And um, it, it really it made a, a profound impact on me, and it's it's just this short story by Hawthorne. I have no idea how I came across it, but it, it never left me precisely for those reasons because it communicates something that's it communicates a lesson through the use of really powerful uh, and moral imagery. Yeah, no, I agree. I um, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's a uh, uh, that kind of uh, attitude towards nature is actually a really. A, the correction of that attitude towards nature is really powerful in that book. I, yeah. I, I, that's one of the reasons why uh, it's mythical mammals. Yeah. My means mammals book was on this grounds, this sort of Hawthornian grounds of if you, if you see nature as something to be carved up, channeled, bottled up, mitigated, transcended, transhumanism, all that, if that's what you really think, right? Uh, you're never actually going to A, be happy, B, be at peace with oneself and one's neighbor, uh, and C, actually be able to maximize the excellence of the natural world, right? Like if, if you're not actually like observing its limits, right, you're not actually going to be maximizing what it can do for you. Uh, right. So I think it's actually kind of an enemy of tech in a way, but I wanted everyone to really, um, uh, get in touch with their mammalian selves and think about <laughs> like what it means you know aristotle says we're a rational animal i'm like well i think we can update that we're a rational mammal 
right? And that means some pretty interesting things like that you should reflect on that that are beautiful and are actually analogs for how we ought to behave. And if you just think, if you just think the fact that that the female sex of humankind uh, making milk out of its own blood for its next generation, like literally giving its lifeblood and converting it into milk through the mammary gland and feeding the next generation. If you think that's just a, an annoying limitation on our ability to settle Alpha Centauri or whatever, right? Like if you think that you're actually not going to learn how to live, like you're not going to live well and you're not going to treat other people properly or yourself and you're not going to be happy. Uh, so getting back in touch with the givenness of our nature uh, and not just the fact that we're stuck with it, but the fact that it actually is a kind of beautiful and admirable thing that is a kind of instructive analog for our ethical and social life together. Um, I think yeah. that's something that you can't, you can't really do philosophically for the city. You could do it philosophically for a few nerds like us reading a couple really nerdy books, but it just doesn't translate into a way of life for a people unless it's put into image. Yeah. In your book, the, 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 uh, the little signet, um, when the little signet is is covered in sort of the grime of of life, and and it needs to be cleaned, uh, the mother in, encourages him to basically dive down, and and it, there's this really beautiful um, depiction of of fish basically cleaning up. In other words, it's kind of return to nature, is what cleans the little signet. Returning to nature, which begins with kind of listening to your parents. And, and rebuild, like fixing that connection with them. Um, I, no, it, it's really, really powerful imagery in your book. And I, I think that ultimately it, it seems like a lot of, or most, if not all, the pathologies of, you know, that, that we see today, whatever they are, transgenderism, um, these things stem from a desire to, to sort of like, either I, I would say it's a desire to overcome nature or maybe something worse, um, like a hatred for nature. I, sir, I really think that that's at the root of things like mass shootings, the kind of ni- like a, the word that gets overused so often, nihilism, but I think it's, I think it's real. I think ma- mass shooters are often people that sort of like take all the cynicism that we've just kind of, you know, resigned ourselves to, to, to in, in daily life. And then just saying, you're right. There is no point to any of this. I'm going to kill people now. And it, it's, I, I think, um, yeah, yeah, I think pretty much every pathology is is like that. A desire to overcome nature. Men can be women if you snap your fingers and give them hormones. Or a resentment for nature. There's no point to any of this, so everyone deserves to die. Shakespeare has a poem that's not well known, but about the turtle dove. Uh, and the image of the turtle and the dove, right? The turtle dove with his sort of little humpbacked shell. I don't know if you know what a turtle dove looks like. Maybe you've seen them, but... They have a little mottled sort of round back bird shell that looks like a reminiscent of a turtle shell. And then they've got the long tail feathers and the, the beautiful white or gray head. So they look like a, a, a dove inside a turtle shell. And it's the image of the soul that can take flight and is mobile and can think about all these other things and have imagination and romping all over and, uh, and great freedom of, of thought. And then the slow lumbering turtle the body right this sort of slow thing that you know like it's natural for us to be frustrated with the limitations of the body 
Like that's natural, right? Because it clearly is slower and more limiting than the freedom of the mind. Yeah. But, but, but it really, the body really is like, it, it's gorgeous. It's excellent. It's powerful. And it provides such an avenue for excellence and virtue, because if we were just angels, then you could not give of yourself in the same way. Like we can actually suffer for one another. You can suffer for the good. You can take a wound, which is something only really a body can do. Right. Yeah. So like that kind of ability to self-sacrifice for others, right. You have to have love of neighbor, love of virtue. And I think in terms of having a civic long-term ability, you gotta have love of God, right. You have to have a certain uh, like, piety to all this if you if yeah. it to hold at any length or any strength and in any number but but the the return to the body i think it's the, the the tradition actually has a lot of sympathizing poetry about yeah i get it you can get frustrated with your body right it's slow it's injured like it's but but the nobility of man is actually to have the intelligence to navigate such a thing that's why i love teaching the odyssey by the way Hmm. Is the Odyssey is the man of many terms. Odysseus is the has the most rapid and fast moving mind. He can range all over. He can speak like an epic poet. He can plot kingdoms down. Like he's just the mind of all minds, the brain of the ancient world. Uh, and and yet he's got one body. He's hungry. <laughs> he's tired. Yeah. He's sick. He's naked. He's stuck away from home. He can't go where he wants to go. He's trapped here and there, but it's actually what makes him great is navigating those limitations, uh, yeah. right? And that's actually part of human greatness. And that's, that's in a certain sense, what I mean by like, we actually have to give images of what it means to be human and beautify it and sing it. Uh, and until we do, you know, we're going to be a series of party platforms that get defeated repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's very true. Um, yeah, the, the 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 kind of downgrading of culture, or the the trivialization of culture, where we we just associate it with basically culture war, which is which is a political term, right? It means like basically, typically like what the food fight of the day. Yeah, it's like a water balloon fight on Mister yeah. Big or something. Or yeah, but it means a lot more than that, obviously, Mr. because Big. culture is ultimately about values, and I mean there was this survey i think it was published in the wall street journal a few days ago and it shows that you know, like levels of, of patriotism are like at the lowest they've ever been but like not just that i mean like that's we always hear about that the the really shocking ones were the ones that showed that um uh basically attitudes towards family formation have steeply declined like there are a lot of people in this country who basically don't want to start families that I mean like that is I shouldn't say it's shocking, but I mean, it's it's shocking how sort of suicidal we become. But on the other hand, it's not shocking because look at our culture. We this is what we glorify, you know. We 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 actively encourage and promote that kind of way of life, and I think it stems in, in part back to something that you said, which is that the one side is very good at this. Like one side is very good at sort of teaching people how to live. Um, often in ways that are not always so, like Madonna, like very unsubtle, the things that she does, right? And uh, But but 
we've given up important aspects of sort of taste making or culture making, whatever you want to call it, like storytelling. And then we wonder why surveys show people don't want to start families. People, in other words, people are basically just okay with dying and leaving nothing behind and not leaving a better world behind because they don't have children. And why would they want to have children? They, they All they've been hearing uh, through their adult life is that children are terrible. They're a drag. They hold you back. They hold back your body from experiencing all of the pleasure that it can, right? So, I, no, yeah, I think that's that's why uh, what you're doing, children's books, I think is actually very important. And I wish more people would do it too. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, um, the, the, we've been talking about the ideas and the values, uh, but it's, it, it is that, but it's also the training of the feelings with respect to all of them, hmm. right? Meaning it's one thing to say, I value liberty. It's another thing to say, okay, I feel scared about liberty, which a lot of people do now, right? Well, but even if I like it, I'm still, I'm afraid of it, right? Okay, well, yeah. a little bit of fear about liberty is actually correct. There should be some caution about how you use it, right? <laughs> sort of, right? But but how do you feel about it? Do you see it as a great good? Do you see it as a great danger, right? It, you know, family life, how do you, when you see a father correcting his son, how do you feel about that? I submit to you that even many people on the right who like tradition and custom, et cetera, if they see a father you know, grab the back of the shirt of their son and say, hey, you're disrespecting your mother, like at a park and say, knock that off, right? Don't do that. You treat your mother. They're like, this is fascism. Oh, I don't know. I, like, but and they might even correct it with an argument afterwards, but their initial reaction is, oh my gosh, this is the patriarchy. Even if they don't have the <laughs> so conditioned by pop culture, taste, art, that the yeah. feelings, the first antipathies or, or pathologies the first attraction or revulsion to whatever it is has actually already been shaped by other people. Yeah. Usually you're not even aware of it and it's through image making it's yes, it's commercials it's shows, but it's often it's, it's from childhood on it's a series of images. Uh, and, and if you're not aware of that as a father or mother, uh, you're in trouble. Uh, but also if, if you're not aware of it, that you've already been shaped by some of these things, you're in trouble. But then if you turn around and say, boy, I actually would like a healthy culture. Well, there's actually, as you said, there's a ton of work to do. Yeah. You have an enormous amount of work to do. Uh, and it, I think it requires a lot of study. I think it a lot, a lot of practice of the arts. A friend of mine just started an MFA, the first one, I think, from a kind of sensibly oriented to the nature of things kind of program, James Matthew Wilson's program down in Texas. Like, like we've actually got a lot of work to do yeah. to build up parts so that we can uh, we can basically reshape these various uh, desires. Yeah, uh, not just the knowledge of the things which are represented in those images, but then also the way in which you feel about all of them. Yeah, uh, and that's why handsome little signet. I actually wanted little kids to see that one disturbing painting uh, in the middle, the the one where he has his fall. Yeah. Uh, I wanted them to see an image, a somewhat horrifying image of the sort of cacophony of colors and just stimulation and hyperstimulation that always comes to a young person one way or another in some encounter online or you know in 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 the, the on the streets or in the shops where it's like, hey, here is the the razzle dazzle and the promise of 
this sort of diversity of images and cacophony of free choice. And I wanted them to go like, ew. I actually wanted to have a pre-rational, like when I see that sort of like, let your freak flag fly wild, yep. crazy cacophony yep. of chaos and, and, and counterculture. I wanted them to, before they've ever encountered it as a little child, be like, that's that's not where good stuff is. Like, I already know, I've already had other stories, i.e. my handsome little Sigmund story, to already sort of help shape their emotions to be like, no, that's, I've already, sus this is already suspect. Yeah. So much of what we want to see happen and so many of the good things that we would like to bring about in the United States and restore in the United States, so many people have, have antipathies to just those things because their feelings have been shaped against good reason. Yeah, no, that, that's such a good point. It just this is related, but uh, almost off topic. But it just occurred to me that we don't really have any more of these kind of like literary movements. You know, you had the, the I think they're called the Southern uh, fugitive poets, something like that. You know, um, Hemingway was part of a certain circle of like expat writers. Um, you just don't have them anymore. And I, I wonder why that is. Um, it, we don't really have these kinds of literary movements with distinct characteristics that are often reacting to something um, and, and, and reacting to political situations uh, through storytelling. Um, like, you know, Hemingway is associated with basically writing and reaction to, you know, being disillusioned basically by everything. Um, I wonder why that is. Do you, have you any, any thoughts on that? Why we don't really have these kinds of literary creative movements anymore? I mean, I don't, not even on, like the the left has sort of like, you know, it's uh, approved authors uh, and voices, but there's no, there's still no real kind of like literary movements that I can think of. Um, yeah, I think I think the left actually literary movements are in a certain sense part of a democratic free society, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, but but the left is so oligarchic. I think what they have is they have court poets, so they have sponsored go. sponsored court poetry, uh, and and so they do have not movements, but they have you know producers of art that are yeah. funded by the Ford Foundation or <laughs> Ford Soros yes. or you know yeah. the Netflix Creative Board with Valerie Jarrett and Barack Obama or whatever you know like that's a brilliant way of putting it by the way court poets uh, yeah that's yeah, that, I mean, that, that gets exactly at what I was trying to to say is that these people are there but they're just they're like state approved so right and the right the, to my mind the right uh does not see it as important enough yet i mean this conversation i hope is is taking us one little pebble stone further down the road here right on uh, uh, to getting it that way but if you want to practice the arts in this way a literary movement that means you're gonna have to suffer i'm sorry like not to toot my own horn but if you think it's easy to acquire this kind of skill yeah. right you know what to do if you think it, if you think it's profitable you're also crazy right it's this is actually right this is a, a social project that my my illustrator and i have actually dedicated an enormous amount of blood sweat toil and tears to bring about right that means you're going to have a lot of people who a have the have the the sort of courage to suffer to do it right so they have to see it as worthy and be right have to risk bourgeois comfort right like you, you you're going to have to say no to some some additional advantages 
right? And all of those, all those sort of literary genres, yeah, some of them became filthy rich, but not at first. You know, they were, yeah. you know, apple cores and cigar butts, right? Like they were sort of barely hanging in there. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, you know, and then only the only certain kinds were lofted up uh, if they managed to sort of hit the right ideological moment um, and be sort of uh, carried forth in popularity. So I do think like art is suffering, you know, you have to suffer for your art. There's a lot more of that that needs to be done. Um, and uh, so, and I think on the right, it's, it's still not a priority. It's starting to become one. I think everyone's realizing, oh my gosh, it turns out culture really is this incredibly important substratum in which politics Everyone's like upstream, downstream. Like I've never cared for the upstream of cultures, upstream of politics. Yeah. politics upstream. I think it's actually m much better to say image is upstream of argument. Now, politics can form an image. Culture can form an image, right? But image is upstream of argument. So if you see an argument, it's because there's a prior image. And you can say, well, wait a minute. Aren't there prior arguments that make images? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But only in terms of a public argument where everyone's like, yeah, this is it. This is my sense of this thing. It's yeah. because of prior, it's because of prior image. That's why I think behind the, 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 the resurgence of any kind of political struggle right now is actually the rebirth of classical education, which started in the sixties, the fifties and sixties. Yeah. And now you've got people like me who are products of that. Now adults building institutions and, the generations on down that people you're reading great books. Like where, where did that come from? That was, that was not happening in the twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties. It's happening in hmm. the counterculture of the seventies, eighties, nineties, right. And onward. Right. So I do think these, these cultural things uh, are, um, are important and not to be forgotten. And, you know, I think I just had a conversation with a, uh, a Congressman last night. Um, we were talking about um, uh, we were talking about what you need to do uh, to develop the workforce, right? Because we've got all these jobs, but we don't have any workers, right? Or you know, like unwilling workers. We've got the workers; they're just not willing. And I was like, "What if you said video games, right? For anyone under eighteen, it has to be with the parents, you know, like the parents' permission. Like they actually, you can't sell a video game to anybody online or offline without parents' permission, right?" basically just sandbagging video gaming, right? Because those images are innervating, like addicted to entertainment, et cetera, et cetera, right? And by the way, most of those video games, the narrative stories in them are utterly anti-Western. Like almost every one, I can't think of one that I have dipped into and looked at the narratives. Cause you need to go on YouTube and see the cut scenes of video games, right? And sort of what's the storyline almost all of them are anti-religious, anti-paternity, anti-law, anti-custom, anti-Greco-Roman tradition, anti-medieval, anti-Renaissance, anti-modern, anti-American, uh, anti-virtue. Like, it's all anti-heroes at best. So, like, thinking through how to control images uh, through politics in a way that commensurate with free society is also something we should be thinking about, right? Yeah. No, that's such a good point. Um, if we we take uh, Murray Rothbard's uh, analysis of the Republic, which is that it was a blueprint for an authoritarian right wing utopia, that was I don't know if you read. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I love that. Um, but he 
I think he was actually getting getting at one thing, or or rather, his his characterization of the Republic reminds me of the fact that um, that one of the first things that has to happen is the, is the banishing of poets, which I always thought was kind of amusing, because it gets at a truth, and that's that the, the role of, that poets play in creating culture and and how that trickles down into to to the politics and ultimately the the entire cosmology of the of the regime. And so the first thing you have to do if you're going to change the regime and the regime type is to get rid of the poets and then have new poets whose views are consistent with the new political order. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a funny analogy, I guess, that, but, but it's not off the mark um, uh, that, that Rothbard was getting at. Yeah. That, that basically, you, you have to, uh, you need a kind of, uh, I, this this almost sounds like hypocritical because we're just talking about court poets, but I actually think you, we're at the point where we actually kind of need that. Like, I mean, if 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 there was a Republican administration tomorrow, and maybe there will be in twenty twenty four, I'm one of the people that's saying like instead of you know destroying the national endowment of like the arts and humanities, we should actually use them to to fund these kind of cultural uh, enterprises. Yeah, so we, well, yeah, I th I think that's right. Like um, the. You know, you look at what Dana Joya did with the promotion of Shakespeare in public schools through grants and scholarships yeah. and prizes. Like, that's actually a good story. But I think it's it, as triumphant as that was back in the day and how we should do what we can with it, it again. I think actually the limitations there are in the extreme with regard to culture. It's, mm -hmm. It really does require, uh, um, you know, <laughs> put it this way. If it's a court, it needs to be like the recusant courts, like a local court out in the hinterlands. You actually, it has to be part of your community. Yeah. You have to want, the community has to want Shakespeare. The community has to want beauty. Yeah. Um, and the only way to do that is local leadership. Um, yeah. So, I, but but I take your point. And like I said, I think Dana Joya is a good, but if you actually look at what Dana did, yeah. there's only so much you can do. Like you, yeah. you really... You, you have to get into the hearts of individuals in a way that the state will not be able to do at the end of the day. Yeah, and look, right. I've worked on, I've worked on, uh, you know, like I've helped uh, Governor Ron DeSantis with his uh, civics education, right? Teaching them all kinds of things, right? Like, and you can teach the teachers so much. Uh, and I work with our K-12 Hillsdale Charter School stuff and you can teach the teachers so much. But at the end of the day, you need parents on board you know, yeah. teachers yep. deeply moved by a certain way of life and a cosmology, right? And it's just, there's only so much you can do to, to turn that. So I think we don't, everyone's a court poet in one sense, right? As you were saying, we're like, yeah, it looks kind of hypocritical. Everyone's a court poet in one sense. But I think the democratic Republican version of that is, and this is utterly self-serving, uh, at least in, in the moment, yeah. Actually, what I find to be the part people are terrible at, which is the promotion of like my book, like Handsome Little Signet is literally designed as a cultural curative to protect children from trans. Like that's what it does. And it, I think it does it quite well. And it does more than that. But that is like very useful. And I've been trying to get all these people to use it, like just just share it. Just tell people about the book, which you're doing. Thank you very much with a podcast. But like that habit, we don't, that's for a democratic Republic. We're actually terrible at that habit. You know, how many times does Tucker Carlson get on and decry something horrible? 
how many times has he put up something beautiful? I mean, just no offense to Tucker. I love Tucker, but like, like how many times do, you know, Fox and friends or Laura Ingram or Alex Jones or OAN, right? Like here is something truly beautiful and gorgeous that is helpful. Like we do yeah. not have, whereas the left does that all the time. We almost yeah. think it's like a leftist thing to celebrate cultural things, right? Yeah. We do. No, we, we do. It, it's 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 difficult. Uh, this is something that I've been struggling with a lot because it's it's just part of the moment. Um, basically, we've gotten to this point where we now glorify like the vulgar, and and we glorify ignorance because we see it as a kind of rebellion against the left, which we've. Basically, by associating the left with, with, uh, with culture, with with taste, um, you know, think of like the New Yorker, right? Uh, think of that, the cartoons, the coffee mugs, this kind of sense that if you read the the New Yorker, you're part of the cultural elite. Well, we've decided that that's uh, lame and effete, and kind of you know, it's like you're if you're a guy and you read the New Yorker, you're actually a woman or whatever. Like you know, right wingers don't do that stuff. Well, congratulations, you've just given up, you know, a very important part of, of what it takes to build a regime. And you've just said, we want nothing to do with it. In fact, and even touching it is lame and makes you somehow like uh, weak. And and I, I, to some extent, it's understandable that there was that kind of revolt, obviously, like, you know, the, the elites, the libs are terrible. So th there was going to be something like this, but there was never a corrective moment. It's just we've gone, I think the right has gone so hard in the opposite direction. All like culture is bad. It's, it's lame. It's something, it's something to be made fun of poetry, kids books. It's lame, you know? And I, I think it's, it's a complete mistake because you've just given up something so important um, that ultimately takes, ultimately determines what the next generation and future generations, how they think and how they live more importantly, and how you've been saying how they feel. Um, which I think is a mistake. And I, I grapple with this a lot because, you know, it's like say, even saying that, you know, it's like the right has become too vulgar. It's like, oh, so you with Mitt Romney now? It's like, no, I hate Mitt Romney. I think that Paul Ryan and all these guys are terrible. And I, I, their, their whole conception of virtue and, and morality is a joke because they're all they're all just as bankrupt as Nancy Pelosi and stuff. But at the same time, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is kind of what we've done by just saying like, all culture is lame, you know, hail to the vulgar. I, I don't agree with that. And it's, but it's difficult to talk about this on your, on the right for the reasons I've outlined. Yeah, no, I agree. And even, even like I, I, I even, even the, even art on the right, and this is a much larger conversation and I don't want to upset some of my dear friends, but <laughs> even the, even the, the, the art, the art world on the right. Yeah. Is I think very often reactive and not creative. Yeah, that they're trying to like like draw a line in the sand against a something like this yeah. isn't you know it's, it's got to be this way because that's the old way and and you're like okay yeah I, I agree but but I I I really Peter I honestly I, I this is you know maybe not kosher to do during a podcast but you need to read Mean's Mammals and we do it <laughs> just on Mean's Mammals because I think I think you will. You will love it. I mean, it, it, it's gotten the reviews from the right are, you know, from the artist, the critic world is it's the first children's classic of the 21st century. And I, and I actually, that's exactly what I set out to do. 
like a mind blowing, like what the heck, this is new and old, crazy town. Like, and and the only critique was it's too complicated. So I made handsome little signet as the stripped down children's book, like a very like I can do that too, folks. Like I listen to my critics when my friends give me a ding. I, <laughs> right, but but uh, but I, but I I want to I want to create the kind of art that's like gives people hope where it's like yeah. we just have a vital culture look look at it we're, i'm not even reacting to them per se like i'm i'm just yeah i'm yes i'm helping kids with dangers today. Yeah. i guess i'm reacting in that sense but it's not about reaction it's just creation like we're we are making beautiful things over here because i think that's part of cultural confidence yeah think of yeah. uh civilization uh what's his name that British Lord, I'm forgetting his name right now, but uh, he has that old series called Civilization, um, kicking myself. I've, I've, I've talked about it a million times, but, uh, and he's always talking about uh, the sheer confidence and vitality of a culture. Yeah. Well, how do you get that? You start making beautiful things, like it's just yeah. worth it. It's time to make beautiful things. Yes, I get we're, un we're, we're under siege or being, you know, you know, attacked, et cetera, et cetera. But look, I'm still making beautiful things because I have yeah. a vibrant and, you know, deep and wonderful culture. And I think yeah. that's, that's the optimism that cures the sort of like, I just got done binge watching breaking bad for the third time. <laughs> and I feel bad about America. I was like, well, of course you do. You moron. You just watched breaking bad for the third time. How do you think you're going to feel about America? <laughs> Stop drinking laudanum and think you're going to go run a marathon. Yeah. Like, no, you got joyful, vivacious art uh, in order to live well and live with the kind of, creative optimism that rebuilds society yeah no that that's, that's such a good point uh, well uh dr mian I, th I think i've kept you long enough uh, but i think we should actually come back to this because the end of this podcast makes me wish that we had started with it because i think there's there's a, a broader and more important discussion that needs to happen about the, basically the right and art um and and basically getting that right because you're right, I think that so often right-wing or conservative-leaning art is just in reaction to something the left is doing, and it doesn't really stand on its own. Um, and as a result, it's not really about building something. It's it's kind of about tearing the enemy down and, and refuting their arguments, which is all well and good. There's a place for that. But ultimately, you know, we, we should be thinking about what kind of world do we want to live? And then actually taking steps towards building that which is i mean another term that's straight out of you know fiction is world building that's exactly what culture is in the at the end of the day where can people find your books basically everywhere um uh, it's on amazon walmart barnes and noble goodreads uh the uh um it's on you go to mythicalmammals.com uh that's a jump page authorial page with you know, links to other places to order it. And you can buy like the t-shirts and the mugs and stuff. We, we went full tchotchke, uh, because, uh, why not, you know, That's but, true. um, uh, the, um, uh, but it's everywhere. Uh, you, you, you can, uh, order online and, you know, look, speaking of having the good habits, please request it from your library. Please actually request it from your local bookstore, make them feel guilty that they don't have this cutting edge cultural item. Right. Like that's part of the game. Right. It's like this is de Rigueur, folks. Why don't you have the book? 
So, or, organize a mob at my local library. That's right. Demand Mian's Mammals and Handsome Little Signet. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, thank you again so much for your time. I will plug uh, all of these things in the comments so people can and should buy them. And I will, uh, <clears throat> I will show up at the uh, homes of my readers if they if I see that they've listened to this full episode and, and did not buy a book. So, um, right. yeah, thank you again. And thanks don't everyone. be a stranger when you come back into town. I won't. All right. And we're, we'll do this again too. So, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, you should go find his books. Uh, my kid, my kids love the handsome little signet. And if you have kids, I'm sure that they will too. We will uh, catch you on the next one.